This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Tippin, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Gina Warren about her new book, Hatched, Dispatches from the Backyard Chicken Movement, published May 2021 by University of Washington Press. Gina Warren writes about animals, the natural world, and human relationships for publications such as Orion, Creative Nonfiction, and Terrain.org. She raises a flock of chickens in her backyard, and I'm very excited to talk to her today. Welcome to the podcast, Gina. It is a pleasure to be speaking with you. Carrie, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I promise not to make this like Dr. Tip and Storytime Hour, uh, but I was drawn to your book and excited to interview you for the podcast because I, too, am an urban backyard chicken keeper. Um, I have four egg-laying hens. Um, I started with an accidental rooster because I didn't know what straight run meant, like many of my uh, colleagues, I think. Um, (laughs) I started my flock in February of 2020, just before the COVID-19 pandemic made me into a work-from-home professor. Um, I built my own coop and run uh, from reclaimed and repurposed materials. Um, All of my hens are named after characters from Eudora Welty's novel, The Ponder Heart. Uh, and I've tried really hard not to become a chicken lady, but I think I might be one because I started a TikTok where I play the ukulele and sing songs with the chicken puns uh, while my hens eat mealworms. So <laughs> there was so much in Hatch that I found familiar to my own journey. And I resonated especially with how thoughtfully you're grappling with what it means to be an ethical eater in a capitalist society and what we as people can do about that. So thank you and congratulations. Thank you so much. And I also think there's nothing wrong with being a chicken lady. Um, (laughs) I know that moniker sometimes uh, gets a little flack, but I think that's absolutely something to embrace. And it sounds like the chickens would probably really enjoy listening to the ukulele while they have snacks. Do you know, I also got them a xylophone so that sometimes they can like peck at the xylophone while I play ukulele. It's real. Wow, that's so fun. <laughs> well, that's enough about me. Uh, tell us about your academic and professional backgrounds, Gina. Uh, how did you get interested in writing about food and, and especially backyard chickens? So I think it, it, looking back, it almost seems a little bit inevitable that I got interested in backyard chickens as a writer and academic. Uh, we had chickens growing up. My neighbors across the street uh, had a like really expansive run, and I didn't realize it until I was older that I don't, I'm, I'm not even sure it was on their property, uh, 
which is perfect. I really like that. Um, and so they ended up having more than the legal limit. And so I convinced my parents somehow that we should get five chickens. And it just really quickly turned into this amazing thing in the backyard where we would take them for walks and like handle them and put them in slippers to go to sleep. And there was a little bit of an environmental awareness, but not much. Um, that increased when I was in college. I developed more of an understanding for the ways food is produced and consumed, having environmental and social justice ramifications, um, became more interested in that. And when I was in my um, MFA program at the Northwest Institute of Literary Arts, one of my professors, um, Lawrence Cheek, for a literary journalism class, he assigned us a project to do something that made us uncomfortable and take some risks in, in this literary project. And I had been considering for a long time, could I kill and process a chicken? And I'd sort of been a vegetarian for many years before that and accidentally got out of it. Um, it was a combination of some social and uh, financial pieces and so I decided for that project, I was like, okay, I need to set a bit of a deadline for myself. Um, this is something I, I really work well with, with structure. So I decided for that project, I was going to get a chicken and go through the whole process with her. And it was something that I really enjoyed personally in a lot of ways, seeing that and being a part of that. And it was this whole new awareness uh, around food and something that I'd eaten for a good portion of my life. Um, so after that, I also had this growing awareness that I could write about this and that there was a lot of meaning in writing about it. And it fit well with other interests um, that I'd been cultivating for a while. So that's when things started. And then this book grew more into fruition when I was getting my PhD in English at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. And I'd gone from living in a small second floor apartment to renting a house that had a backyard with one of my best friends. And around that time of transition, I was thinking about chickens and about eating and about food and about some of these things that I've been mulling over as a creative writer and a little bit too as an academic. And so it seemed really natural, like, oh, there's finally space for chickens in the backyard. Like, this is absolutely what I want to invest my time in. And uh, so the book was just a really natural offshoot from a very long process. Can I ask how, did you write a dissertation for that PhD and what, does it have any relationship whatsoever to this project? I'm I super did, curious actually, as an um, English PhD. <laughs> yeah. So I had, um, I did a, the book was my dissertation. Well, a version of the book was my dissertation, although I actually had the contract with the University of Washington Press before I pitched it as my dissertation, um, before I really knew I was going to do it. And so uh, I had a, I had a very smooth job getting it by the committee because I had a book deal already. Um, I did do a critical introduction that was a digital humanities project that I'm really interested in digital humanities. So it was a digital humanities project um, that looked at representations of 
the word chicken and chickens in American literature from 1901 to 2019. And it used um, the historical corpus of American literature and corpus of contemporary American literature to pick up every mention of chicken in American fiction. And then I used Cynthia Whistle's uh, Dictionary of Affect and Language, which is a three-point system for most words in, um, in English that assigns a value. So from one to three, words can either be pleasant or unpleasant. They can be active or passive, and they can be imagistic or not imagistic. Uh, so for example, chicken is seen as somewhat pleasant and very imagistic. It's easy to picture a chicken. Um, chair might be more considered more passive. So I established a what I called the word environment, which is the surrounding words uh, on either side of a target. So my target was both chicken and chickens. And tried to determine, okay, so what is the effective scope? Uh, so in the sentence, the big bad wolf ate the little pig, uh, it seems that the words around wolf impact the way we view it. Not just adjectives, but also associative words like pig in that context. So using this system, I created a program that I could put large swatches of text into and get values for every time chicken or chickens was mentioned. Uh, and then I tracked it over time to establish how consumer trends changed or affected or correlated or mirrored with uh, literary trends in the affective representation of chickens. So it was a very fun project, a very nerdy project. And um, I'm really grateful to have done it. And it was interesting looking at that work alongside working on the book because there were moments in history I found where our, where the effective representations of chickens shifted and either they completely ignored consumer trends or uh, historical events, or they seemed to match with them a little bit more accurately. Uh, so that was really enjoyable to map out. That is the coolest thing I've ever heard. And when we get off mic at our break, I'm going to ask you so many more questions. Um, I, I do have an interest in digital humanities, but I have nowhere near the skills that it sounds like you have. So let's talk some more. Uh, that's amazing. Well, I think that explains then why there's such a unique blending of academic and literary journalistic style of prose um, and this narrative memoir that runs throughout the book. Uh, most of the people that I talk to on this podcast are pretty firmly rec you know, rooted in the academic side of the house. And it sounds like you have that solid background in both. Um, you do have a, a, an appendix and a sources there at the back. Um, and readers are going to see you cite things like Wendell Berry and Carol Adams and things that are pretty familiar to our food studies audience. Um, so tell us a little bit about your research, your research process and, and what are those overlaps between your your uh, participant observer experience and some of your academic research. Yeah, I, so I think for me, I always like understanding things from multiple perspectives. And so it was really important for me to, not only for the book, but for my own experience, contextualize what was happening and what I was participating in, in uh, within a larger frame, and then also look into research. So 
from a writing standpoint, a lot of what I was doing was researching things that I thought mattered to the events as they occurred. And also every chapter had a front-loaded sense of research. Um, So I started with research before I got chickens. And then I continued with the research process as I was writing. And something that I think was really productive that came of that is I felt like I was able to talk about backyard chickens in a way that sometimes isn't done because I, I personally really love reading memoirs. Um, that is a spare time activity hobby that I don't think I'll ever shift away from. Uh, but I, I notice sometimes in memoirs that I read about food and about animals, I am always curious about other questions. Uh, like, is there a scientific reason for this? Like, why do you have to dip chicks' heads in water? Why do they have to get their beaks wet in order to know to drink? Uh, or what exactly is the process of an egg? How many eggs can a chicken have in their body at once? Like, what what is this? Uh, so that was something that I really enjoyed doing. And I always try to strike a balance between research and personal narrative, uh, not only because I think narrative helps make a nice frame, but I think sometimes if there can be too much research, you can get lost a little bit. And I like having a clear sense of where things are going. Yeah, the narrative absolutely helps keep it moving, right? And it seems to also be um, kind of a structuring for how the book is even organized, right? That chronological life uh, of the chicken. Um, On the first page, you state your motivations very clearly. Uh, I chose to increase the overlapping territory in the Venn diagram between what I consume and what goods I can understand as part of a continuous process. Uh, Say a little bit more about what what that means, that understanding a continuous process and what it was that motivated you to really start this project. I think it's pretty common to encounter things in the world, whether they're food or other consumer goods, that almost like appear fully formed to us. Uh, It's like, you know, a great goddess appearing fully formed. And there's there's a little bit of a lack of understanding on where that thing came from. And at least for me, when I was um, a younger teenager, before I started with vegetarianism, I never really considered that I knew meat came from animals. I think everyone knows meat comes from animals. That's that's a very basic thing. Um, But I didn't always consider where milk and eggs came from. I I wrote them off as natural byproducts of animal life that could be uh, sold and purchased. And I didn't consider the trajectory before they arrived in a store. Um, And I think that's also a pretty, a pretty natural thing to do. And So with this project, I had, at the time when I started writing it, I had already been straying away from, uh, from purchasing animal products and things like that. But I, and I had already had chickens as pets that were laying eggs. So I understood that in a sense, and I'd already, um, slaughtered chickens and some other animals. And so I understood that in a sense, but I didn't totally understand going through the entire life cycle of an animal. Um, So one of the motivations was trying to 
really focused on how I could encounter the things that I was using as an elongated process of, of life or of making or something like that. And I don't think that this is something everyone needs to do. I would not recommend it to everyone. I don't think it's practical um, in some ways. And I think there's also a lot of privilege in being able to do it. You know, I was in a PhD program, so I had relatively flexible hours. It wasn't um, unheard of that I would have to maybe jet out of a meeting a bit early um, and do something for the chickens or... I didn't have a standard nine to five, so I was able to be more available. It wasn't a problem if I was out until midnight dumpster diving. I didn't have to be at work at 6 a.m. So I don't think it's practical for everyone, but I do think it's interesting to think about goods as a continuous process because when we start to trace them back and tweeze apart the steps and the layers and what went into them and whose hands touched them and things like that, we can start start to understand the way larger systems shapes what we're able to consume, what we have access to. And occasionally, especially if there is a level of privilege, um, whether that's financial or time-based, we can start to choose a little bit more. Yeah, I think that's what motivated me as well, was sort of thinking I had been a vegetarian, not a very good one, but I was working really hard at it. And it seemed like the thing that I most could not stop eating was eggs. But what I recognized as maybe most violent was eggs. Um, and so I, I wanted to get closer to the thing that made my food, right? And I'm not, um, a big animal lover. just uh, And I had maxed out on dogs. So <laughs> time to get chickens. Yeah. And I, I, I think, too, the idea of um, eggs as being involved in violence is yeah. one that isn't universally recognized. But I think it is arguable that chickens who lay eggs are some of the most abused animals in our current food system. So I think that yeah, brings up an important point about consumer perception and just about the reality of, of eating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it was the phrase reproductive slavery that really got me uh, to get serious about what it might mean to, to not have eggs as a part of my diet. Uh, Okay, so the book, again, is is organized in that chronology from the first baby chicks rooting in the bathroom um, through all the kind of various decisions a chicken keeper has to make about coops and food and um, and then eventually the death of the animal and and eating its flesh. Um, So talk about that first moment. What prompted you to bring home those first baby chicks? Was there a particular inciting incident or a moment that let you know you were ready for this step? Can you, can you point to any particular moment where you were ready? I don't know if there was a set moment so much as a compiling of other things, um, which I think is a natural way to experience change. Uh, <laughs> but I remember at one point you know, moving into this new house and knowing I was going to get chickens before telling the landlord, <laughs> um, which again, do not recommend. Uh, but I remember when I was looking at it, like mentally trying to measure the backyard to see if it was 
spacious enough uh, to legally allow allow chickens there, according to the city's regulations. And noticing that and being like, okay, great, this is going to work. Um, so I think that it was it was a process, and it wasn't something that was maybe entirely conscious on all levels of like, oh, I'm going to move here, get chickens, get these other ones. Uh, it was a little bit more of like, oh, there's space. Like I can do this. Um, and yeah. And I think it, it fit with the timing of just like where I was in that life stage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we've already talked about this a little bit, uh, but one of the threads that runs through the book from that very first chapter um, and especially in the next chapter when we meet a chicken rescuer um, is the, the industrial food system and the abuses of the animals that are raised for food. Um, so maybe tell us a little bit about what life is like for a hen or a rooster on a, on a factory farm. Well, it really depends. Um, if it's an egg farm or if animals are being raised for meat. Um, roosters' lives in the industrial system are generally incredibly short. Uh, there's not a lot of use for them. They, they don't lay eggs. Um, I think the term feminized protein by Carol Adams is really apt here. And I think that's something that's really helpful to consider is a lot of the foodstuffs that are animal-based are from female animals. So quite a few baby chicks are, the males are ground up within a couple days of being born. And it sounds so apocalyptic in a way. And I want to mention um, before talking more about the food system, because I think that this is important, is there's oftentimes the idea that this is like just one or two of the places that you know, raised chickens for eggs or for meat. Um, not that this is status quo and that it's maybe hyperbolic. Uh, I do not think that is a productive way to think about that. And that is also not a very accurate way to think about it. Um, I'm actually reading Just Finished Porkopolis um, by Alex Blanchett. And the, the full title is Porkopolis, Animal, American Animality, Standardized Life and the Factory Farm. And it's about hog farms. But Something that Blanchett mentions in that book that I think is really, really helpful um, for considering industrial food systems like this that deal with animals is there's a tendency, and this is not verbatim, but uh, he recognizes a tendency in a lot of people who are writing about this to see um, industrial animal agriculture as somehow like aberrant or like outside of norms of capitalism as if this is like the worst of the worst um, when in reality it's a little bit more of like a bellwether for trends in capitalism um, and a little more of like a predictor so it's not something that I think is like you can't really differentiate it from the capitalist system as like this one terrible thing that we do that's not the case um so that was a very long frame, but I'll get back to answering your question now. No, that was very helpful. <laughs> and I was going to mention, you know, later you have the chapter where you, you go through the process of, of killing your own chickens. And I noted that that was not a dramatic, hyperbolic, descriptive moment. It was really very straightforward and even-tempered and 
I appreciated that so much. And so hearing that frame for it, I think makes a lot of sense. Okay, so go on. You were talking about what life is like on a factory farm. So very short for male chicks often. And in some ways, even though that's a horrific death being ground up, um, one could argue that is relatively merciful. So we mentioned egg-laying hens earlier. So egg-laying hens are kept for a short period of time, uh, usually about 18 months or so. Uh, It can be longer. And the light schedules are often manipulated in hen houses in order for them to be more productive. Uh, So they're also, and there are some differences um, in terms of free-range, cage-free, things like that. Um, oftentimes when hens are kept in battery cages, they are stacked battery cages. And so things from the hens at the top fall to the hens on the bottom. Um, this can be feces, uh, body pieces, things like that. And they aren't cared for. Um, so their claws can go very long. They can have lots of lice or parasites, and their bodies are their bodies in the environment are both leveraged to make them hyper productive from an egg laying standpoint. So this can cause a lot of problems internally. Um, things like prolapsed uteruses are not uncommon, and the strain it puts on an animal's body to lay that many eggs is astronomical. I think a lot of people think like chickens just lay an egg a day, like that's just what they do. Um, I've heard it compared to a woman's menstrual cycle, like that just happens for so long in their life. And there are some obvious corollaries, but in the wild chickens, you know, decades and decades ago, it seems strange to even say, um, would lay closer to a dozen to 14 eggs a year. And now we have hyperproductive chickens laying 280 eggs a year. Um, so those are very, those are very different. And Yeah. And um, so at the end of a chicken's productive cycle, because when you're doing chickens on a very large scale, even a 10% drop in egg productivity can result in a lot of eggs overall. So at the end of a chicken's productive cycle, and these things can be elongated by, by light, by forced molting, by sorts of things like that, they are killed. And they're considered spent hens. Um, Some spent hens are killed on site, which I think you could argue is a more humane method, Um, usually with CO2 tanks. So they're suffocated. And there are problems with that. I have heard about chickens not being fully um, killed not being completely dead and being thrown into landfill, being thrown into dumpsters. It's just really horrific to consider. Uh, Also removing them from the cages is not a kind or gentle process. And the other alternative for spent hens would be to go to a slaughterhouse, which is really, if you think about being transported after having all of these bodily issues and let alone what happens at the slaughterhouse, that process can also be very violent um, toward animals whose bodies are vulnerable. And I think spent is an apt word in this context. Um, Just 
very fatigued by, by different systems. And I'm also, I'm happy to uh, describe some things that I heard from chicken rescuers here or to talk a little more about slaughterhouses. Right, let's not... talk a little bit more about the chicken rescuers then because you cover that in the, the second chapter. So wh- who, what is this group of chicken rescuers that you met? Um, what happens to a rescued hen? Uh, tell us more about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, so on the Tour de Coupe in Silicon Valley, I met Isabel Knud, uh, who has a micro sanctuary called Chlorophyll in her backyard, uh, which is absolutely wonderful. And she became involved with rescuing chickens through Animal Place, which is a larger organization. And Isabel described to me the process that she underwent rescuing chickens. So she went with other rescuers to a farm in California. Um, And I'm speaking specifically to one instance, although there were other instances. And they went at night when it was very dark because the chickens would be a little calmer to move. And this was something that the farmers knew they were coming. Uh, So there was a deal struck, so to speak, between the rescuers and the farmers that it was possible for the rescuers to come and take a number of chickens out as long as they didn't give identifying details about the farm, say where they got them. And from the farmer's perspective, this is financially productive because you spend less time on gas. Um, You spend less time with workers transporting chickens from their cages to a, it's usually like a large, uh, almost like trash can like apparatus with a gas tank on the side. Um, So there's, there's less money spent employing people to do this. So it's not a, um, it's not motivated by an awareness of animal rights. Usually it's financial. So, they went in the middle of the night to this farm. And one of the images that really stuck with me is Isabel described uh, seeing the chickens hanging in cages and their white bodies were illuminated. And she said they were like little ghosts just kind of hanging in the air there. Um, A lot of uh, hen houses are enclosed, but this one was an older model and it wasn't. Um, So when they were there, they were transporting chickens from the cages into crates that they had and then onto a truck to take to the rescue organization, the sanctuary. And she described some of the chickens being, the word was entombed, she used, I believed, uh, by their claws on the bars because they have such limited access to space and there's water and food right there provided for them so they don't really move around. Um, being stuck because their claws had grown so long. And most backyard chicken owners won't will know that you don't have to clip your chicken's claws generally because they wear them down by scratching and things like that. Um, although I do know some people who have needed to clip their chicken's little nails. Uh, and she also described the chickens being infested with lice, with poultry lice. Um, there, She described there being some bodies of chickens. I this is not verbatim, but the sentiment was, fortunately, there weren't more, um, which is very bleak, but also very realistic. And so after the chickens are brought to the sanctuary and transported, 
Um, there needs to be wide-scale health checks. Um, so chickens need to be checked for broken limbs. They need to be checked for, I, I mentioned prolapsed uteruses earlier, um, all sorts of possible health conditions. And they're also usually quite weak because chickens are generally not fed in the 24 to 48 hours before they are killed. Um, because why would you spend money feeding a chicken that is going to be slaughtered that will not be laying you any more eggs? So after they are checked and uh, separated according to their medical needs, they're, they're put into a large barn. And this was something I found really interesting is as well as telling me how there's this thing that do called declumping that takes place for a long period of time after the rescue. And it's because the chickens are so unaccustomed to space that they do what they know. There's comfort and consistency for more animals than humans. And so they would pile on top of each other, trying to get as close as possible because that, that was that mirrors the conditions that they were living in. And there's this huge barn. They don't know what to do. Um, they have roosting bars, but they're not strong enough to get on them or to access them. So the volunteers need to go through and declump these heaps of chickens because they will crush and kill the ones on the bottom. They're so desperate for comfort and consistency that it creates really dangerous conditions for them. And this is, this is speculation, but it sounds like one of a really difficult thing in my imagination of this would be to, I, I just, I imagine it'd be very difficult if you didn't catch this soon enough. Um, because you have these chickens, obviously, who have been rescued and given a second chance and are going to be put up for adoption. But then they are doing this behavior on a large scale that could kill them. So after um, this process goes on, uh, the chickens are eventually strong enough and healthy enough to be adopted out. And they get new life in backyards, so to speak. Um, a lot of the chickens that I met at Isabel's Micro Sanctuary were rescued chickens. Um, and it was so amazing because they were so friendly. And one of them was like missing an eye, which Isabel said is very common for chickens from organic operations because if they need medication, they can't, you know, they, they're non-organic if they're given things like antibiotics, um, which is something that consumers really value, but can also be at the incredible detriment to the laying hens. Um, some of their beaks were a little bit messed up, but they were all very happy and incredibly friendly. And that was just really amazing to see because, you know, here she is or in this like sunny, beautiful backyard. And she's telling me about this kind of horrific circumstances. And the chickens are just like hanging out, having a grand <laughs> old time eating grain. Uh, so that was, that was a really nice way. Um, it was a very gentle way for me to hear the story of the rescues and things like that. Um, but yeah, with, know, the sure. ending, with the happy ending, yeah, with the happy ending, <laughs> although, although I do think there's that pressure of the not happy ending and that this right. is continuing and that most chickens are not rescued. Um, and that this is a reality for most birds. Yeah. <laughs> Well, moving into the backyards, um, you describe the the Silicon Valley tour de coupe, which I think would transplant beautifully to my city of Pittsburgh. Um, uh, we both love biking here and also chickens. 
Um, but you conclude that chapter by really thinking about the class implications that you see there about backyard chickens, that in some ways it can be very bougie, um, very much a product of privilege, uh, and that chicken zoning regulations are largely products of redlining and environmental racism and all of those issues. So maybe talk quickly about some of those paradoxes that you discovered on this trip. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it, Full disclosure, it might be hard for me to completely compartmentalize just what I learned on the trip, but I will try my best. Um, so something that struck me, that still strikes me about the backyard chicken movement is there's this idea of like going back to the land and like, you know, locavore. And often a lot of these terms are bolstered by privilege. It is way easier to eat local. It is way easier to eat organic um, for people with a lot of financial privilege. Uh, you mentioned redlining and lot sizes. And there, because of the way regulations are set up around backyard chickens, a lot of people who even are homeowners, if it is a smaller lot, do not have access. And so there's this idea of like, we're going to go back to the land and, and chickens. Um, but I always wonder, like, what? Does like what is the salient aspect of that? Um, because the whole idea of like you know going back to your roots can be wonderful, but I think it's important to remember that like this kind of homesteading project in the United States is built on genocide and the violent removal of people from tribal homelands. And so, like, what what roots are we talking about? You know, and then we have. Um, we have in the 1920s, um, the Supreme Court upheld the legality of municipal powers to regulate land use policies, particularly around livestock. And in the period of urban sprawl after World War II, there was a lot of targeted um, campaigning to limit livestock as a means of gentrification that was pointed at working class, low class and immigrant neighborhoods. So in some ways, there's been, there's been livestock in close proximity to people and living spaces in the past. Um, and it was stripped away as an act of racism, xenophobia, and gentrification. There were obviously other things that came up, but I really think it's important to keep that in mind. And so now when you have people who have a ton of class privilege enacting some of these things that have been restricted in the past or are still currently not, you know, universally accessible, it brings up a little bit of a dilemma. And I notice sometimes in those spaces that are very privileged, there's not a recognition of the occasionally slightly hypocritical ways we consider this as a project um, and consider this as a practice. And I'm, I'm not saying that people uh, who have class privilege shouldn't have chickens or that every that there should be no regulations around chickens. Um, but I, I do think it's important to consider. And something I noticed a little bit on that Puerto Coop in particular was that there were these huge houses, like multi-million dollar houses with incredibly manicured lawns and just like landscaped and these coops worth thousands and thousands of dollars and it isn't super practical in the sense of like, you'll never get enough eggs to make that. And 
it almost seems like a, it, it sometimes can seem like an extension of landscaping uh, where there's not a lot of individual labor put into it. It's more of a cool side project. And I think that's just, that's a really interesting piece of it because it does seem like some of the privilege from like local food, organic food has transferred over to backyard chickens in a really pointed way. Um, that isn't to say all the houses I went to on that tour de coupe were like this at all. I'm not trying to like indict that tour de coupe. It was um, a really incredible learning experience. And I really enjoyed the people that I met there. And I think a lot of them were doing really good work, but I do think it's important to remember. So the next chapter focuses on some of the implications of raising animals and plants for food in urban areas, um, especially you describe it as an act of activism. Um, so you also talk in this chapter, especially about how much work it takes to eat ethically and to do this kind of action. Um, you write, I think about how sometimes the easiest thing is both simple and hard because the other option is just more convenient, but undeniably inferior. Uh, this is also the chapter where the first disaster strikes your young flock. Another challenge of chicken keeping that's very familiar to me. And you remind us it's not just play farming and happy hens. Um, so maybe talk about that urban agriculture and the work that involves, um, including the emotional work. Yeah, so I think that one of my motivations for this chapter was wanting to frame backyard chickens in a larger context of something that we seem to be increasingly interested in and grappling with in the United States. Um, so turning urban and peri-urban spaces into agricultural productive spaces. And I, one of the things that I think is really crucial is that we often have this idea of like the kind of pastoral green space of like, oh, it's just gorgeous and convenient and it's so nice. You just like throw seeds out there. Uh, no, it is really hard. And it depends on its place-based, right? So it depends on the place, like the challenges you have. Um, but I think some of them can be somewhat universal. Like, so in this chapter, um, you mentioned disaster strikes with the chickens. I had an incident where my two dogs were outside in the yard and I had not completely secured the chicken run and two of my chickens were killed. And it was really this moment of like, okay, so even though I consider myself somewhat proficient in these things, I clearly really messed up. And it's not just something where you can spend 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes at night and consider yourself accomplished. Um, it takes a lot more than that. And I think too, one thing that I think is important with backyard chickens is considering, you mentioned like emotional toll, I believe, um, considering that in terms of like, what do you do if a chicken gets sick? What do you do if a chicken gets hurt? Um, backyard chicken owners are much less likely to take their chickens to a vet than they are to take a dog or cat to the vet. Uh, part of the reason is access. It's, it can be really hard to find places to take chickens. Um, I have been on that end of things and I can say it is not entirely easy um, but also the idea of maybe not having or wanting to put a, not, a lot of money into this project, especially if you're someone who's like building your coop with reused materials and like dumpster diving to feed the chickens or doing any number of things that people do. And 
that's yeah, I think that's that's a, a bit of a sticky point sometimes for for backyard chickens is like you know where is this line? Um, how much of it can be like farming light, um, and how much is actual commitment? And like where do you need to be in that in that phase of things? Yeah, the thing that connects those two chapters and that will I'll get you to talk about a whole lot more now um, is that inescapable presence of capitalism. Uh, so the next chapter is the Freegan chapter about dumpster diving that you've, you've mentioned now a couple of times. Um, so your Instagram bio notes that you're a lover of acts of micro resistance against capitalist ideologies. <laughs> I think that's really beautifully said. So what is a Freegan um, and how is it resistance to capitalism and how does it fit in with that urban agriculture resistance too? Absolutely. Uh, so just like a vegan is someone who avoids all animal products, a freegan is someone who avoids capitalist systems and their consumptive habits. Uh, so this can take a lot of different forms, but one of the ideas, and also I am not an expert in freeganism. This is not something that I have practiced as an individual. I do try to limit the ways I participate in harmful and violent systems of capitalism, although I am still very much embedded in this. Uh, so that's important to recognize. But so it can take many forms. Freeganism can take many forms. Um, but one of the ideas is that there's so much surplus in the world um, that it is possible to not buy things. Um, and also... It's an ethical standpoint. So just like someone is often going to maybe be vegan or vegetarian for ethical reasons, right? There's environmental ones, definitely. Um, but there's also an aspect of animal welfare and of wanting to reduce harm that you implicitly or explicitly commit as an individual in this larger violent system. Um, freeganism is, a, it has ethical implications because it looks at how capitalism is fundamentally violent, how it's fundamentally violent toward animals, toward workers, um, toward individuals and our environment and saying, you know what, this doesn't line up. I don't want to be a part of this. Yeah. So you feed yourself and your chickens dumpster food. Talk a little bit about that. What is it like to dumpster dive? Uh, what do you find there? And uh, how, how do you deal with it when you bring it home? I love dumpster diving. Uh, I think that is, a, I want to just recognize that. I absolutely love dumpster diving. <laughs> and I also think it's important to recognize that I have a ton of privilege with dumpster yes. diving because I am a relatively young white woman. Uh, so if a cop or a store employee or someone sees me in a dumpster, they assume that I do not have to be there. And I am seen as a non-threatening presence there. My friend who taught me how to dumpster dive uh, is Sicilian uh, and has a, a darker complexion. So he's often seen as Middle Eastern. And his experiences with cops are not my experiences with cops. And so dumpster diving can be incredibly risky and not from like a health perspective, but that too, right? But um, from a privilege and like systems of oppression perspective. So I, I love dumpster diving and I'm really happy that I get to do it. Um, although I don't think that everyone has the access that I do. Uh, so when I go dumpster diving, <laughs> I will often go at night. Um, I have gone in the day, which is just very like, you know, 
hardcore. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, all of the normal safety things. I, I tell people where I'm going. I sometimes bring friends. Um, I have a headlamp. I have closed toed shoes. I, people should probably wear gloves if they go. This is not a how to on dumpster diving. Like, <laughs> no, of course. Not, <laughs> this, is not, this is just my process. Um, and, I think also like knowing where to go can be really helpful. Um, so like knowing which spots are productive and are fruitful and, and the way you figure that out is by checking things out, by seeing what you find. Uh, so, and I, I think it too, it kind of depends on what you're looking for. So I knew that I was really interested in produce and things like that. Um, so kind of shaping that. And then I would I, I clean stuff. When I get home, um, I also make sure to not pick things that are touching the sides or bottom of a dumpster um, because those are very dirty areas. But for the most part, I feel like there's this idea of dumpster diving as being super nasty and maybe this perception that there's like yogurt spilled all over everything or whatever, whatever it may be. And there are certainly stores where they have a policy of making workers um, rip apart packaging or pour coffee grounds on old pastries or you know, soiling good food um, that is not going to be sold. There are those practices. So I, when I figured out which places did that, I stopped going to those dumpsters, um, which is obviously the intended effect. But for the most part, there's accessible, safe, clean food. Um, practicing common sense is really important. But uh, it turned into a really wonderful way to feed all of my hungry chickens and it felt really in alignment with trying to reduce the amount of waste that was involved in the process. So a, a lot of chicken food can be products of monocropping um, of other violent systems of agriculture that are having huge, terrible, negative environmental impacts and a lot of things that have to be trucked around. So it was really wonderful to have this moment of like, oh, I can feed my chickens for free, which is helpful because, you know, I was on a graduate stipend. Um, but also that like, I can take some of this surplus that is just going to go to landfill that is just going to further um, increase this like capitalist desolation of the world. And I, I can make this useful. I can make this productive. Uh, and I think too, the chickens genuinely enjoyed it. I mean, if you're like, you know, if, if it's a question of like, do I want some nicely cooked meat and sweet potatoes and that kind of thing, or like some dry pellets, uh, they seemed very willing to participate in this as well. Yeah. Yeah. I don't do dumpster diving, but I do have a reputation in my neighborhood uh, as the chicken lady. And so people bring me all their vegetable scraps. So typically, awesome. typically once or twice a day, I find a bag of banana peels and, um, you know, asparagus butts and things like that on my porch. So <laughs> and I'm sure your chickens are so grateful. They're very grateful. And I'm grateful, um, which, you know, kind of takes me to the next chapter about pampered poultry. Um, I definitely think of my chickens as pets um, who have personalities and peculiarities that I know and love. 
Um, I don't take them swimming, uh, as some people in this chapter do. Uh, but talk about some of the ways that people uh, pamper their pet chickens that you found interesting. All sorts of ways. So you mentioned people take their chickens swimming. Um, chickens go on road trips. I spoke with one woman whose chickens would come to work with her and hang out in an airline hangar all day, or she'd bring them uh, like to the Hamptons. Uh, people will give their chickens pretty much any... So I, I think this is um, well stated. This is uh, a man named Patrick with Grubbly Farms that I spoke to in this chapter. He said something like, you know, anything that a dog has, people will do for a dog or cat. There's like a chicken corollary. And I, I think that's a really nice way of thinking about it. Um, chickens have treats that are grain-free, that are organic. They have harnesses and I bought one. carriers. <laughs> you did? How did it go? Uh, we walked one chicken one time and then decided it, chickens, like it's a good way to keep the chicken from running away, but you cannot direct it in any particular way, right? So I can hold on to it and move about the neighborhood and keep it from like flapping off. But nobody enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's very based on their temperaments too. Like I've, mm. I've heard of and seen chickens walking well on leashes. Uh, but I've also seen and heard of chickens who do that kind of like some cats, you know, they'll just fall over when you put a leash on them or a harness on them. Yeah, some some chickens hate it. Uh, yeah. And so I, I think what was really like enjoyable about this chapter was just seeing all of the like seemingly quirky things that people do with their chickens, but actually realizing like a, a lot of people do these things with their chickens. And then B, it's not that strange. Um, we, I think as a society have very like heterogeneous responses to different domestic animals as pets. Um, and chickens are just a part of that. So for some people, chickens are their primary companion animal. And for some people, that's a dog. Uh, so really considering it in terms of, you know, people's individual lifestyles and relationships, I think is helpful. Um, I, I did talk to some people who keep their chickens inside and they live their house chickens, uh, which my chickens do not have the temperament for, or maybe the... I don't have the temperament for, um, or they weren't trained properly to be that way. And, and some people are very against house chickens, but I'm a, I'm of the mindset that people decide. And if you want your chickens in a coop and they're safe, that's great. If you want them in the house and they love to cuddle on the couch, that's cool too. Yes. I definitely watched TV with the baby chicks when they were a couple of days old, but oh. after that, we, we, you know, we still snuggle, but not quite, not quite to that extent. <laughs> I applaud your devotion in the next chapter when you experiment with breeding insects and worms uh, for both you <laughs> and your chickens to eat. Um, I think that's a bridge too far for me right now, but I definitely admire the effort. Um, so what are, why, why did you want to <laughs> do insects and worms and what are those benefits as a food source for humans and for hens? Yeah, so I think the only reason that people aren't eating more bugs is because we aren't doing it. Like, I, I think a lot of bugs are very tasty. Um, it is, they're an incredibly environmentally friendly source of protein, iron, of different things like that. And once you, it seems like a far step, but once you do it, it's not as 
not as wild as you think it might be. Uh, so I had started eating bugs occasionally, insects, when I was in my early 20s. And it was really just part of this idea of like, I want to reduce my impact. I want to try and limit resources. So it, it seemed natural. Like I had my landlord very kindly um, undid the bathroom sink so I could use that water for bucket flushes. And I was like, okay, so I should probably just start eating some wax worms now. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I think this is something too to consider as we have a growing population and a further ailing earth, um, it's not that viable to have animal agriculture the way we do. Um, it is actually very damaging. So I'm a big fan of eating bugs and of entomophagy, uh, although I am terrible at raising them. I could not seem to keep insects alive, which is interesting because everyone that I spoke to assured me that it was the easiest thing to do. I'm still confused as to why I had so many problems with this. Um, but in addition to bugs being arguably really good for people um, because of things like protein and iron and other vitamins and minerals, and also because bugs require far fewer resources than cows or chickens or pigs or anything else. Um, and then too, there are welfare implications, you know, to slaughter insects, you can put them in the freezer. Um, they are good for chickens. So insects have a lot of amino acids, um, those same things that our bodies need. Uh, chickens, obviously a little different, but chickens' bodies also need. And it's a way to set your flock up with a low-cost, low-impact protein source. So I am a huge fan of it, although I am really terrible about putting it into practice. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'll buy my mealworms already dried, if that's okay, for a, a little while at least. I do think mealworms are a particularly labor-intensive one um, mm. because they're, you know, they're like a larval stage. Um, so there's some picking through and separating of beetles mm. from larvae that I hear has to happen. Yeah, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. <laughs> it's understandable. <All> right. <laughs> so, um, so after those kind of chapters, um, then you get a second group of, of uh, chickens that are meat birds. Um, and they're very different from egg-laying hens in almost every way. Uh, I found it fairly shocking um, to read some of the ways in which they're intentionally bred and they're so fragile. Um, talk a little bit about what's the difference between meat birds and, and these egg-laying hens. Absolutely. So I mentioned earlier that chickens have been selectively bred to lay more eggs than ever before and or is natural for their bodies. And meat birds, or in this case, I, I got Cornish crosses, are also bred in this way, but for an entirely different purpose because their primary purpose in that selective breeding project is to put on to convert calories as quickly as possible to body mass and as effectively as possible. So I think there's this consumer mythology to imagine 
chickens as one animal and the same chickens that lay eggs are the chickens that people eat and find in stores. And that is absolutely not true in any way. It could not be further from the truth. They look different. Um, they grow differently. They develop differently. And so a lot of meat birds are slaughtered very young because that's the point at which their meat is tender. Um, their muscles are usually underdeveloped. So that contributes to what consumers expect. Um, and they also will start to have health problems if they continue to live. Um, and there are some people that I, I know who or I've encountered who've kept Cornish crosses alive for a longer period of time. Uh, but when I was also like talking to Isabel, I mentioned her earlier with chlorophyll, um, she mentioned that it's really difficult to keep them alive in sanctuary situations because they will die and they're like six to eight weeks old. So Cornish crosses have, it's a very long selective breeding project. And I think that it's important to consider it in the context of consumerism because these chickens were selectively bred for no other reason and to grow large quickly. Um, so a lot of other bodily functions were sacrificed. So they often have leg and joint pain. Um, they can very fragile hearts. They can develop all sorts of issues um, because they are just growing. So the, and these Cornish crosses that I purchased um, were very fragile, very vulnerable. And there's all these things you have to do. Like you can't give them 24 access to food because they can grow so large and quickly their legs will give way or something like that. Um, you also have to encourage them to exercise. So I was very adamant about having an arguably too large brooder in the house and putting food and water and light at different places within it. So they had to walk around a lot. Um, and it's also, I think, important to note that oftentimes in more like homesteading situations or people who are raising chickens for meat, um, this is a route people go. Because if you're thinking about raising a, a chicken who's more commonly associated with egg laying for meat, it takes so long for them to grow and develop and they will never be as large. Um, and the amount of resources that it takes to bring a bird to that size when they're not biologically predisposed through selective breeding to grow to be that size is astronomical. So when people are trying to be self-sufficient, raise their own meat, um, Cornish crosses are usually the natural choice. So that the very necessary chapter on slaughtering your meat birds, again, I think it was especially well done, clear, unflinching, but not dramatic or hyperbolic, as we mentioned. Um, and in the end, it's surprisingly easy to make a chicken into chicken, um, but not without getting emotionally and ethically involved. So talk a little bit, if you feel comfortable, about some of those feelings and considerations that come up when uh, a chicken's life comes to an end uh, that you've been caring for and, and living with. Yeah, I think it's, it's something that's always hard, and I wouldn't want it to be easy. And I, I think that's... That's something that I, I often think about. Um, and especially with the Cornish crosses that I had, they were so endearing um, and so 
not what I expected because I expected, I'd, I'd heard a lot of stories about meat birds as being uh, fragile, with they, which they were, but as being uh, limited in their mobility and just kind of sitting around and eating. Um, but these chickens were dynamic and interesting and had personalities and were very uh, demanding of me. And I, I guess I just, I find that super sweet in animals. Uh, so I did get pretty emotionally attached and I found that I, I really missed having them and missed spending time with them. Uh, I also really appreciated having meat and it's an interesting line to walk, I think, emotionally and ethically. And I think a lot of views about this can be shaped by the larger kind of industrial animal agricultural complex. And, you know, it's curious to imagine an animal that you care about and then also eating it. There's, there's a tendency in my mind to have that like devil's advocate voice of like, well, then why not just, if you care, why not just keep them alive? Why not just take care of them? Why not just keep having this emotional connection? Um, and it's hard to answer. I think there are pieces of it that deal with, you know, wanting to lessen an impact on systems. I also think that there sometimes aren't easy answers to the way people eat or engage with food and with consumerism in the context of food politics. Um, and I also think that not everyone should do or needs to do the same thing. So I think any kind of universal answer about how we eat, um, how we should be eating is suspect in my opinion, but it was a really difficult process. Um, I am really grateful for it. And it is, it is surprising. You mentioned moving from chicken, like, well, chickens, like animal chicken to chicken body parts, meat, flesh. Um, and I think it's fascinating because there's, there, there seems to be a moment that that transition takes place, even though it's a continuous process. Um, even though it is a very long process and even moving from a dead animal to something that we, some people consider food, um, is, is fraught. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, the last chapters explore that very last stage, uh, which is dinner. And there, there aren't really recipes here, but you describe some delicious sounding preparations of liver pate and chicken feet and stir fried intestines and, you also described the pleasure and pride of preparing meals for your friends and family with your own, like with your chickens. Um, and it shows your dedication that, that urban agriculture pays off. So what do you think is ultimately the thing that makes all that physical work and thoughtful investigation and emotional investment worth it for you? I think it's a couple things, but I think one of them is the process and understanding what goes into the process, right? Like we talked earlier about understanding products, goods, food as a piece of a continuous process, um, as the result of a long trajectory. And so that to me is one of the things that makes it worth it. I also feel like I have more capacity to 
understand and invest myself in things and appreciate nuance when I am participatory for a long period of time, when I use my bodily labor uh, for something uh, rather than trading time or money or something like that. And another piece that I think makes it worth it. And also, I don't think that these are things that would make it worth it to everyone. um, But this is just speaking me personally. Um, Another piece that makes it worth it is being able to have some of these goods like eggs and meat. And also knowing that I didn't buy them. I think that's really important to me. Um, And sharing too is a piece. Like I, I like the idea of needing to make your decisions bigger than yourself in a way, or of needing to make the benefit that you glean from your decisions bigger than yourself. Uh, So sometimes that's not just sharing meat or eggs. Sometimes that's bringing people along for part of the process, um, involving them in some way. And that's because I think that those experiences are really productive for having people come to what they feel like is a more kind of authentic and self-directed mode of participating in systems. Um, Because if you don't think about things as part of a continuous process, if you do just have a product at the end of something, then you don't really get to decide, right? There's there's less awareness there. Um, So that's a piece of it I really like too, is of helping give people experiences maybe that they're looking for. Well, this is not in the book, but I want to ask you about kind of the the COVID-19 pandemic chicken boom. Um, I always tell people that I got my chickens before the lockdown and that I was planned long before we even knew there was, I got them in February of 2020. So I had about two weeks <laughs> with them before I became, you know, a stay at home worker. Um, But there's been a well-publicized increase in chicken ownership during this time of staying at home and grocery scarcity and general anxiety about apocalyptic economic and social collapse, I think. Um, And you recently published an article uh, about training chickens during the pandemic (laughs) and getting Joan to recognize your book was particularly adorable. Uh, So what do you think will be the legacy of this time uh, on the backyard chicken movement or um, you know, kind of what are your thoughts about pandemic era backyard chicken keeping and, and what that might mean for the future? Yeah. So I think that the legacy might have multiple branches um, yeah. because I think that there's multiple motiv- motivations for getting chickens. And one of the things that I, I'll start with what I'm a little more suspect of, um, because in terms of concerns about food scarcity, uh, a chicken is not a great way to <laughs> fight food scarcity. Uh, you might, like, yes, you will get eggs every week from your chickens, but you're not going to get eggs until they're like six, seven months old. Um, so that was something that when I was hearing people about like pandemic buying chicks, I was like, oh my gosh, like they're not, they're not going to be ready to lay eggs in so long. Um, There's also a seasonal aspect. So chickens will not lay as many eggs in the winter when days are shorter and it's colder. Uh, So that I found really suspicious because it, to me, I had concerns about chicken welfare and about understanding exactly what chickens are like, um, because 
there is the perception that they just lay an egg every day and it's like, that's it. And they'll start laying when they're big, not like seven months old. And I, I think too, there's a piece of it where chickens do not lay their entire lives and they also can live to be quite old. Um, I think the Guinness Book of World Records oldest chicken, that record was given when she, she was 14 and she lived to be like 16. Uh, so they can live to be quite old. And what do you do when their productive abilities decrease if your only motivation is having eggs at a time when maybe they're not as successful through the grocery store? Um, there's also a lot of privilege in being able just to like up and get some chickens. But I also think that part of that uh, like pandemic chicken phenomenon is really curious and potentially really productive because it shows that people have a desire to do something that's a little more hands-on and labor-oriented when current systems are threatened. And so even though it might be short-sighted to get chickens for some people, um, for others, it could be something where they, it's like the, I've heard them called like the gateway animal or like, uh, <laughs> you know, like, so I think that can be really interesting because, you know, if it, if our, our collective, if some people's impulse in a pandemic is, okay, what can I do myself in my backyard? How can I make use of the spaces I have access to, um, for, you know, consumption and for food, then it illustrates that there's a willingness and a desire and also a consideration of how small practices can shift our lives in some way. So I really hope that all the chickens that were bought in the pandemic are taken care of, that everyone has a good plan for them throughout their lives, um, that we don't see a bunch of chickens going to rescue organizations as things open up, um, because those are all huge risks. And I also think that even if some of that happens, um, this might have been a really beneficial time for some people in maybe realizing something about animal agriculture, realizing something about products that they consume that they did not completely understand or think about in that way before. So what other projects are you working on next? What's next? Well, I am working on some essays right now. Um, I really love writing essays, and I took a bit of a break from it when I was working on the book. You mentioned that I, I just had an essay published, and that was really wonderful. Um, I am considering another book and what that might look like. Um, I've been really curious about some of the heterogeneous responses that we have to animals and different ways that we think about animals and how this in some ways is, is, is pretty flexible, even though we might personally see it as rigid or there are rigid constructs around different animals. Uh, I'm also curious about some of the industrial, environmental, and social effects of animal agriculture, large-scale animal agriculture, and how that plays out in the ways we think about the environment and think about animals as either part of our lives or totally separate from them. So that, those are some of my current projects and considerations, uh, but I am excited to, to keep working with some of these ideas. That's great. 
Well, we've been talking to Gina Warren about her new book, Hatched, Dispatches from the Backyard Chicken Movement, published May 2021 by the University of Washington Press. Thank you, Gina, so much for being here. I've enjoyed our conversation so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this as well. Well, And thank you for listening.